Our passage this morning will be Psalm 139. We read to the choir master, a Psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Let us join in this prayer. Father, we thank You that You are the all-seeing God, that You are the God who holds us, and You are the God who now comes to support us with Your Word. As I am feeling weak, and as some of my brothers and sisters here are feeling weak, speak to our hearts of Your nearness. Open up this Word to us and open our hearts to receive it. In Jesus' name, Amen. It is intimidating to preach a familiar psalm. And it is a little bit terrifying to preach a favorite psalm. But it seems almost impossible to preach a familiar favorite where the reflections are so rich that even the psalmist says... Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is lofty. I cannot attain to it. 
We'll have to resign ourselves that we will not exhaust this psalm this morning, but by God's grace, we will join David in his reflections and be able to join him in saying in verses 17, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. I awake, and I am still with you. He needs to say that because this seems too good to be true. This seems like it must be a dream. Can it really be that God would be with us so personally and we are with Him so inseparably? Can it be that in a world where we just churn out disposable junk so quickly in mass production that the Almighty, all-present, all-knowing God actually handcrafted each of us? What we see in Psalm 139 is a man who is lost in the wonder of these sort of thoughts. A man blown away at receiving the intimate attention of the infinite God. This psalm has some of the, the biggest, the loftiest theology and thoughts about the attributes of God. But its reflections are really close to home. It is full of glory. And yet what seems to arrest David is grace. David is not amazed that God is so immense. He takes that for granted. What overwhelms David in this psalm is that this God who is infinite in every perfection would care about Him. And this God who is infinite in every perfection also cares about you. I think David is also overwhelmed for the same reason that a man wandering in a desert for multiple days might collapse in tears at finding an oasis. The perfect personal love of God is an oasis. It satisfies the deepest desires of our souls. It is what we have been looking for in community, in friendship, in marriage. We want love that knows us, that won't let us go. We want love that is intimately invested in us. Now in drawing comparisons to human relations, I'm a little concerned that it might sound trivializing. Some of you might know the the meme-worthy 80s hit where a band named Sunseed is singing, Jesus is my friend. I have a friend in Jesus. And it seems kitschy. We are not saying that God wants to be your best friend. But what I want you to see this morning is, is that the reason we value these things we'll look at in human relationships is because at their best, they have picked up on our deepest desires. At their best, they have picked up these things and they've transposed them the love of God, they've taken it and put it in a new key. They've transposed it into a key that we can sing. We humans. The best human relationships are a reflection of the love of God. And so our psalm this morning will reflect on and respond to the intimately close and the intensely personal nature of God's care for us. His is not a distant love. 
He is near and He is active. I want us to join David and be lost in wonder that the infinite God knows and loves us intimately. And we'll see this in three ways in this psalm. One, God knows you. Two, God is near you. And three, God formed you. And after observing these reflections, we'll see a response. So first, God knows you. Look at the first six verses. Oh Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. What David describes here is one of our deepest longings and one of our darkest fears that we would be known. The desire to be known drives our, our need for community and our, our search for a spouse. And even the simple tendency, kids, from your youngest days to want to have a best friend. Yet being known like that is risky. To be known is to risk rejection. Because I'm not perfect. And you aren't either. There are parts of me that are ugly. Habits that I'm ashamed of. And limitations that I am embarrassed by. And I don't know how you would respond if I let you know that piece of my history or a struggle that I'm currently going through. I might pass through what some people have called the mortifying ordeal of being known. And you might turn away in disgust. Or you might betray my trust. You might say, I didn't sign up for this level of drama. We fear. We fear and so we wear masks. Our mask says, I've got it together. While our heart is falling apart. Our mask says, God is good. And inside we're saying, where are you, God? Many of us are carrying private burdens of grief and sin and shame and struggle. But we don't let on. We don't let others know. Because we fear being judged. We fear bringing the mood down. We fear looking weak, foolish, unholy, and sometimes uncool. We fear, and so we wear the mask. We wear it, but we long to take it off. We long to be known and no longer have to, in addition to the burden of these things, to also bear the burden of a charade. We want what one writer described as the inexpressible comfort of feeling safe with a person, having neither to weigh thoughts nor measure words, but pouring them all right out just as they are, chaff and grain together, certain that a faithful hand will take and sift them, keep what is worth keeping, and with the breath of kindness, blow the rest away. And that, friends, is what we have described here in Psalm 139. God knows us intimately. He knows us completely. And He does not turn away in disgust. He knows you and loves you. And this is where the doctrine of God's omniscience gets really personal. Omniscience 
just means all-knowing. To borrow from A.W. Tozer, he says, to say that God is omniscient is to say He possesses perfect knowledge and therefore has no need to learn. But it is more. It is to say that God has never learned and cannot learn. God does not and cannot learn. That's important theologically and pastorally for us. It's important theologically because there are some people who have tried to rescue God as if God needed rescuing. They try to rescue God from being responsible for moral evils like murder and bombings and rape and um, genocide. And they suggest that He didn't know certain things were going to happen. This heresy called open theism insists that the freedom of human choice means there is no future to know until we make our choices and create the future in the present. It's all very creative and intriguing. There's just one problem. It doesn't fit the Bible. It doesn't fit the psalm. Here is a God who is not only meticulously aware in the present, but who is also perfectly aware of the future because He planned it. We read in verses 3 and 4, You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, You know it altogether. And if you need it made more clear, look at verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In Your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. So why does it matter? It matters because the force of David's point that you are perfectly known and loved hinges on the fact that nothing God is going to discover about you is going to cause Him to say, yeah, no, we're not doing that. God already knows all about you. David uses the bookends here to show the completeness of God's knowledge. He knows you in every position. When I sit down and when I rise up. He knows us in our activity and in our inactivity. My path and my lying down. He knows us in all our ways, all our words, and even all the thoughts behind our words. God's knowledge of us is so comprehensive, it's almost scary David uses language, siege language, when he says, you hem me in behind and before. This is like an army surrounding a city. And I picture somebody, maybe if any of you have ever had an animal, a new puppy or something, or or farm animals, and you're trying to catch the duck, and you've got it cornered, and, and it's scared. And we're scared when we think of how God hems us in behind and before. It would be terrifying if God, like a shepherd gently comforting a cornered lamb, didn't lay His hand on us. You have laid Your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful. Our worst fears evaporate. He knows us and He loves us. Truly, such knowledge is too wonderful for us. So we see God knows us. Second, we see God's personal love in that He is near you. Looking at verse 7-12, through 12, 
Where shall I go from Your Spirit? Or where shall I flee from Your presence? If I ascend to heaven, You are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, You are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there Your hand shall lead me, and Your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be as night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day because darkness is as light to you. If David's first section underscores the fact that God will not abandon us, this one underscores the fact that we cannot abandon Him. The first one celebrates God's love as unshakable. The second, God's love as inescapable. As with the first point, this characteristic of God's love resonates us at a really deep level. We feel every day. Because we all want love to be stable. We want love to be inescapable. Now, of course, everything in its proper place. We're not condoning stalking. I don't care how nostalgic you get listening to your 80s playlist and the police are singing, every move you make... Every breath you take. Ladies, if the guy says, I'll be watching you, that's a bit creepy. That's a red flag. Um, there, are, there are some control issues, some uh, codependency or something. We know that love is not self-seeking and it's not rude. So at a human level, respecting personal space is important. But recognizing this, Recognizing that this aspect of love can be twisted, isn't it true that, that we all want the security of knowing that somebody's not going to give up on us? That there's a love we can't get away from. This is one of the great things about marriage. Athena and I are stuck with each other. Just like Luke and, and, and Abby decided uh, yesterday. We settled that 17 years ago. Luke and Abby settled it yesterday. The question is no longer, are we going to have a life together? But what kind of life together are we going to have? I fully expect that there is a limit to the amount of personal space Athena is going to give me. And that's right and that's good. For us, we have a pattern of going to bed at the same time. Not every couples do that differently, but if if suddenly I'm not going to bed, Athena should have alarms going off because this is different from for us. And so she's going to come and find me, say, "Hey, babe, what's going on?" And I like that. I want that, and I need that. We need love like that. Because we all have times that we push away from the people we love. We try to create distance. And when we do that, there's part of us that hopes, that prays we are unsuccessful. Friends, what David celebrates here in verses 7-12 through is the blessed failure of any of your attempts to get away from God. There is no place we can go where He is not. This is the doctrine of God's omnipresence. As God's omniscience says He knows everything, 
God's omnipresence says He is everywhere. Again, David uses the extremes to encompass everything between. Verse 8 says, If I send to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. There is no space that God doesn't fill. Now, we say something like that and we're so locked into our physical mode of existence that we think of God as filling all space like some huge being. We think of a size. And the problem with that mental picture is God is a spirit. He doesn't really have size. He exists outside of our physical world. He doesn't have spatial dimensions. It's not as if a small part of Him is present in every place so that some get His face and some get His feet. God is not divided like that. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. So clearly, God's presence is of a completely different type than we are able to, to do. You can't have your eyes everywhere, even if you're a mom with the eyes in the back of your head. You are limited, but God is unlimited. Sam Storms expresses God's omnipresence in a succinct way as the whole of His being is always everywhere. So when David thinks of taking the wings of the morning and dwelling in the uttermost parts of the sea, he doesn't imagine bumping up against God's little toe. He says, even there your hand shall guide me and your right hand shall hold me. God's presence at the edge is His full presence. His presence at the extremities is His active presence. It is His personal presence. We have all, at times, tried to push away from God. We, we say in our song, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. There are times in which we try to slip into the shadows and do our own thing. And this psalm reminds us, you can't do that. There is no escaping God. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. When we realize we can't escape Him, we are forced to face Him. But as we face Him, we find not the scowl that we expect, but the gentle searching eyes of a Savior who says in the first verses of Isaiah 55, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Incline your ear and come to Me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. So God knows us. God is near to us. And three, God forms us. God formed you. We see this in verses 13 through 16. For you formed My inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. 
My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. We've been reflecting on the intensely personal nature of God's love for us. And we've noted how His divine attributes, like His omniscience and omnipresence, rather than making Him distant or unapproachable, are actually what make His love so perfect and personable. David takes these big theological concepts and he pulls them down out of abstraction. And he says, God cares for me. God's omniscience doesn't just mean abstractly that He knows everything. He does. God's omniscience here means He knows everything about you. God's omnipresence just doesn't mean He happens to be incidentally in every place. It means He is everywhere caring for you, coming after you. Now David has one more. In addition to uh, omniscience and omnipresence, God is the omnipotent, omnipotent, meaning all-powerful, sovereign creator. And that doesn't just mean that He made everything. It means He made you. He made you. He formed you. And when He made you, He gave detailed attention in that work down to your inward organs, this psalm says, and down to the day-to-day plan for your life. So even though God uses processes, kids, some of you are learning science, I hope, and you're learning about processes like mitosis and and, uh, the reproductive system and things like that. Even though God uses processes like conception and mitosis, even though He uses agents like a mother and a father, yet we see in this psalm that God is personally active in the creation of every new life. No person, no matter how small, is an accident. There is no such thing as an unplanned pregnancy because God planned our days, every one of them, whether that's 30,000 or one. From our earliest development, He sees our unformed substance. And He has been knitting us together in our mother's wombs. A factory owner might say to his golfing buddy, I make cars, even though he hasn't taken a step on the plant floor in years. It's a true statement. But God is not like that factory owner. God is at work, in the work, And why does that matter? It matters because God's personal creation of you means God is personally invested in you. Some of you have kids that like to draw prolifically like our kids do. And some of the drawings are just like they take... You're like you're going through the computer paper because it's just like a smiley face. And, And others, maybe they spend a day drawing a masterpiece there is greater investment. And if you, if one of the other kids tears up their smiley face picture, there might be a few tears. But if something happens to that masterpiece, it's going to take a while to recover. 
Now, God doesn't uh, get affected the way we do, um, as if He were going to be beside Himself. But there is a transfer of His investment in us and His care for us, which I think is what David is picking up on when he talks about the intimate work that God does. The careful knitting together. If David merely wanted to show God's omnipotence, His sovereignty, there are more impressive displays in creation than you. There are. He could, like, like God does in Job, He could pick up on His creation of the foundations of the earth and, and the water cycles and, and huge beasts, monsters, dinosaurs, like behemoth and leviathan. Or, or He could, if He wants to show sovereignty, like in Isaiah, He could pick up on themes of, I control the destiny of nations. I plan these things. I raise up Assyria. And they take out this group. And they punish them. And then I take out Assyria. He could do that. But David's not arguing for God's omnipotence in the abstract. He assumes it. He's showing how God uses His omnipotence in this very personal work of forming you. Of forming your life. Which means we have God whose personal love knows us, whose personal love causes Him to be near us, whose personal love is at work as He formed you and as He formed the days planned for you. So how do we respond to this God? Some of us might get a little nervous about all this talk about God having a personal interest in us. It's squishy. And don't we think too much of ourselves already? Isn't this just going to feed ego? And then the talk of God knowing us just as we are? That's dangerous. I mean, isn't there a danger with grace being so lavish? We could take that for granted. We could say, I don't need to change because God loves me just the way I am. Truth is always at risk of being misunderstood and misused. I mean, Paul Paul experienced that. He had people saying, it sounds like you're saying we can live whatever way we want because God's going to forgive us. And they got that because they heard how free Paul was portraying grace. And it is that free. They're just conclu- their conclusions were off. They didn't get the right way to respond. Jesus also, He would do things that He would get misunderstood and misconstrued. Look at the way you hang out with sinners. It's like an endorsement. Those people should be canceled. You're hanging out with them. But we only have to complete the psalm to see that misuse is not the only way to respond to truth. David's reflection on God's personal love here doesn't give him a big head or cause him to take grace for granted. It doesn't give him a big head, it gives him a big heart. A heart full of passion for God. The intimacy of God's love calls out a reciprocal response of love. You felt that in your relationships with people. Somebody loves you, you want to love them back. This is a fundamental law of human nature. 
We love those who love us. Jesus said that. And here, God, His personal love for us inspires and inflames a personal love for Him. A love that is jealous for God's glory and a love that is zealous to please Him. So we look at verses 19 and following. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. This is not your typical imprecatory psalm. In in every other psalm like this, the cry is something like, God, crush my enemies, defeat the wicked who have risen up against me. And that's right. But here, there's no reference to evil done against David. If if you look at the direction of the logic, in, in all the other psalms, you have a reference to, God, these people are coming for your people. Defend your name. But here, the logic goes the opposite way. It's, God, I see that these people are your enemies, so now they're my enemies. And, and, and David to say, I count them my enemies, wouldn't really make sense if they were already his enemies. If they were already men who had set themselves up against him. Now, I don't think that these are men who were the, uh, the Philistines or, or, or some others. I think these are insiders. I think these are men, maybe like Joab, David's nephew, his military leader for so many years, and yet at the end of his life as he's commissioning Solomon, he describes him as a man of blood. He's a a man who ultimately would join uh, one of David's son in trying to take the throne. Not Absalom, um, but, but Joab is described as a man of blood. And so when David says, depart from me, O men of blood, it could be men like that that he's got in mind. David cares about the glory of God and he he sees people taking God's name in vain, pretending, pretenders. He sees them on the side being impious, on the side not following God's law, on the side, killing men in times of peace rather than in times of war, which is what Joab did. And so he, he, he burst out, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! And this outburst, which seems like an, a, a weird glitch in the psalm, is not a glitch at all, but part of its natural flow. Because... It's not so much an imprecation as an expression of love and loyalty as a response of the deep love felt from God. A true appreciation of God's intimate interest in us will not make us proud. It will make us worship just like David. It will make us cry, Lord, Your kingdom come! Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Get rid of these wicked people! They are, they're bringing shame to your name. Get rid of them. And of course, a heart of worship 
then it will not be satisfied being concerned, being outraged at those people, being concerned to see change out there. It will also want to see change in here. And so David completes the psalm by turning inward and saying, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We stand before a God who is intimately aware of everything in our lives. He knows you. He made you. You can't get away from Him. And we say, search me, O God, and know my hearts, my heart, try me and know my thoughts. We need to be prepared for the fact that He will know it all. And we stand before Him if we stand at all because somehow, somehow the sins that He will find there have already been dealt with. David can only pray this prayer because he knows the grace not only of a God who is all-knowing, not only the grace of a God who is all-present, not only the grace of a God who is all-powerful, but he knows the grace of a God who forgives. The grace of a God who has taken him and washed him clean, who has made a covenant with him, to give Him His steadfast, sure love. And in Jesus, each of us have the opportunity to know that same love. A love that will not let me go. A love that sings, He will hold me fast. A love that can pray with David, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my my thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. David can pray this because he can also pray, wash me and I will be clean. And in Jesus, each of us can have that same confidence that we can be clean and we can be loved by this personal God. Let us pray. Father, we thank You. We thank You for Your nearness. We thank You for the interest You show in lowly creatures like us. That each one of us knows Your presence. We pray that You would help us to walk in the joy and in the love of this reflection this week. In Jesus' name, Amen.